0: Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today, I have a special guest with me. This guy has a topic that is so, so controversial, but tame at the same time. I have with me Jimmy Fritz.
1: Oh, I got to turn that off. Go turn my phone off. Here you go. Yes, Jimmy Fritz from Vancouver. Welcome. Hi.
0: And how are you doing today, sir? Excellent. Thanks. And you? I'm doing very well. Could you let us know what happens in your world in Vancouver and why you are here today?
1: What happens in my world in Vancouver? Yes. Well, uh, let's see now. I have, a, I have a fantastic social life. I have a wonderful group of friends. I write and uh, make music and uh, do podcasts. And here I am.
0: Okay, okay. Now tell us who Jimmy Fritz is.
1: Uh, Jimmy Fritz is the author of the recently published Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer and also another book called Rave Culture and Insider's Overview. Um, I have a website at jimmyfritz.ca where you can discover all my secrets lurking.
0: Okay, and now your accent, your accent, uh, is that from the UK?
1: I'm from England originally. I was born and grew up in the UK and I left there permanently when I was about uh, 20, 23, 24, something like that.
0: Okay. So you've been pretty well-versed in uh, culture and everywhere around the world. So here's the major thing. You just told us the title of your book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. Please break down the terminology for ethical drug dealer.
1: Well, an ethical drug dealer is first of all, that somebody that deals in ethical drugs or drugs that improve and enhance the quality of your life. And that would include the psychedelics. I'm talking about LSD and DMT, psilocybin, ayahuasca, mescaline, drugs like this. These drugs actually, you know, improve your, um, expand your consciousness. They improve the quality of your life. Uh, They're non-addictive. And uh, I've always uh, disseminated them to responsible uh, adults. So that's the ethical part. I've never had anything to do with opiates or coke or crack or crystal or speed or any of these other and they all tend to get lumped into the same category. And that's one of the goals of this book is to show that, you know, psychedelics in particular are a different class of drugs. They're not dangerous. They're not addictive. Uh, you can get a lot out of them. There's a there's a massive amount of research going on right now into psychedelics and they seem to be, you know, they are being used for a depression and anxiety and all these others. So there are many, many therapeutic uses for these non-addictive substances and we need to put them in their place and put them in a different class to the more harmful and addictive drugs. And that was one of the goals because I've been using psychedelics for 50 years and I've never had a problem and almost everybody I've ever known has been a psychedelic drug user uh, with with uh, almost no problems whatsoever. Um, the other class of drugs, the addictive street drugs, are a completely different world and one that, one that I've never been involved in. So that was one of the overarching themes of the book, is that psychedelics, normal people, I mean, most of the people that I saw, I'm an ex-drug dealer, I should point out, But most of the people that I dealt with over the years were uh, responsible people, they were professionals, they were doctors and lawyers and, you know, government workers and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of professionals. So these were not, these were not people that were reckless or using drugs irresponsibly, they were using them to enhance and improve the quality of their lives and that's what they did so. You know, that it's a it's a it's a it's a point that doesn't get out that often. I mean, there's a Columbia professor called Carl. um, What's his name? Oh, I forget. Carl, somebody or other. Anyway, he just wrote a book about the responsible use of drugs for adults. And uh, he's confessed to using and he uses cocaine. He uses heroin. And he uses a lot of drugs, but he uses them. And I maintain, too, in my book that any drug can be used responsibly. It's just that you've got to be a lot more responsible with some of them than others. But psychedelics, in particular, are uh, relatively safe and harmless and possibly very beneficial.
0: All right. So I have a question because I deal with a lot of people that have these two things, depression and anxiety. How can psychedelics help people that are depressed or have anxiety?
1: Well, anxiety is a fo- anxiety and depression. They're both a kind of a fo- they're both where your brain gets stuck. It gets stuck in a rut and you can't break out of it. You get stuck in this cycle of thinking and you can't break out of it. You can't see outside of that. What psychedelics do yeah. is they rewire your brain in a different way. And now all of a sudden you can see, you get an objective perspective. You can actually see yourself from the outside in and in a new way. And and it it creates a new way of thinking, which breaks you out of this destructive cyclic, you know, think uh, uh, destructive cycle of thinking, which is where what depression and anxiety really are. You're stuck on this one thing. It's like a compulsion and you can't get out of it. Uh, Psychedelics rewire your brain. They change the way you think. And once you think differently, you can approach your problems differently and see them more clearly. And uh, it's very, very effective for those things. There's, um, you know, there's probably 100 studies going on right now around the world with uh, psilocybin, with LSD, with Ibogaine. And um, they're all being used for depression, anxiety, end of life uh, issues. And... um, they're getting great results mdma for instance will be a prescription medication for ptsd with it probably within the next year it's been, oh, wow it's being it's been studied for 25 years now it's taken there's an organization called maps run by a, a guy called rick doblin who's been working on getting mdma as a prescription drug for ptsd for 25 years now and it's just coming into the third stage studies. The FDA have just recently given it a special designation of a substance with exceptional potential. So they've catapulted it to the front of the line. And uh, with all these vets coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and everywhere else with PTSD, nothing is working for these guys. they you know, a lot of them are committing suicide. They don't know what to do. Well, they're curing people of PTSD with two or three sessions. With uh, MDMA, also known as ecstasy. So it's very, very effective. And, uh, you know, therapists are very excited about it because they can actually do something for their patients.
0: And, and I thank you for all that wealth of knowledge because knowing that now and knowing, like, I, I deal with so many people that deal with uh, these things in life, it'll be a way, like you said, to take away that compulsion in their life. And Rewirems, I greatly appreciate you for that knowledge. And I'm glad to know about that study. Now let's dive a little bit into you real quick. So 50 years with psychedelics. How did you go about your life like maintaining and, and never overdosing on any of these psychedelics?
1: Um, well, you just don't take too much. <laughs> <laughs> avoid overdosing you take the correct dose and that's it's a good point because it's very very dose specific like the difference between uh, you know the difference between 30, mili- 30 micrograms of lsd and 300 micrograms of lsd is huge so you have to know your dosage you have to know your frequency you have to understand what these drugs do and you have to use them respectfully and responsibly and if you do that there are great benefits to be had Anything you do irresponsibly is going to be a problem, right? So if you do too much of anything, it's like the difference. You can have a glass of wine with dinner and it's no problem, right? Or you can drink a you know, 40 pounder for breakfast and that's going to be a major issue. The only difference there is dosage. It's the same drug.
0: OK, and, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. Just watch how you're doing it and with illicit things. Obviously, you don't have a, a prescribed method on how to use it. So those lead to overdoses. So um, one thing I want to elaborate on smart drugs and dumb drugs uh, over on your website and uh, throughout your book, there's certain uh, terminologies. And this is one I definitely would like to talk about, because I like those phrases, a smart drug and a dumb drug.
1: Yeah. So it's a kind of I do a, it open. My book opens up with a kind of a treatise on smart drugs and dumb drugs. And smart drugs are the ones that increase your perception and awareness of the world and therefore improve and enhance the quality of your life. Dumb drugs are the ones that decrease your perception and awareness, and therefore take down the quality of your life. So a lot of people do the dumb drugs, and I'm talking about the addictive ones like coke and crack and opiates and fentanyl and all these things. People do those drugs for completely different reasons. They do them to get out of it. You do psychedelics to get into it. And it's a completely opposite, it's a completely opposite motivation and uh, application. So the dumb drugs make you dumb, and the smart drugs make you smart. And if you do smart drugs for long enough, you can um, become even smarter. If you're if you're doing dumb drugs, then and you do smart drugs, then you can end up being a smart person doing smart drugs. If you're a smart person <laughs> that starts doing dumb drugs, then you end up being a dumb person doing dumb drugs.
0: Okay, I like that. Now,
1: you have numerous titles to your name.
0: Um, you're a musician. Bring us into light when you decided to become a musician or how it started in your childhood that you wanted to get into music and, and tell us about the highs and lows. Because the amazing thing with you is you have 50 years experience across the board doing everything. So you have a vast knowledge of, of technology and in its all the way until now.
1: Right, you know, right. So, when I, I, I mean, I was uh, hitchhiking around Europe as a teenager and, um, you know, needed to make money and I did fruit picking and other things, but uh, ran into a guy in a, in a campsite who taught me three chords on a guitar and uh, I learned three songs and then I was, you know, playing in the streets of Rome three days later and making money. So that was a revelation because then I bought a guitar and I uh, used that as an income for the next uh, you know three or four years hitchhiking around in different countries and uh, could make a living wherever I was so that's how I started and then I got you know a bit more sophisticated learned a lot more um, I was a professional musician for a number of years in uh, duos and trios and a jazz five piece jazz band and and um after that, I just uh, I wrote songs. I've written a lot of songs. I've got five albums on my website. You can download for free. That's jimmyfritz.ca And um, recently, in the last few years, I've been making music videos because I was also a filmmaker for many years. And so yeah, that's my, another one I wanted to dump. Brought my uh, you know f- music skills and filmmaking skills together and made uh, twenty-four music videos of my original songs, which are also on jimmyfritz.ca and a YouTube channel under the name Jimmy Fritz, J-I-M-I, Fritz. And um, yeah, it's been greatly fulfilling. I don't do it professionally anymore because it's um, the type of music that I play. is kind of personal music. It's acoustic music. It's kind of jazz ballads and folk ballads. So there isn't really much of a commercial application for it. But I really enjoy doing it, and I still play music every day and um, will continue till I drop dead.
0: Okay, now with the filmmaking, making music videos, so going from being the person that creates music to becoming a uh, basically a cinematographer because you have to have a certain eye for when you shoot video. Because anybody nowadays just points a camera and can shoot a video, but it takes a little bit of art um, yeah, yeah. to doing that. So, uh, how did you come along with your filmmaking? Like, what what was the first mistake you made, and how further uh, along did you get more advanced with it, and uh, get to a point where you knew? man, I'm good
1: at what I'm doing. Well, I've started, I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated with film. I've been a film buff for a long time and was fascinated with world cinema and independent cinema and auto cinema. So um, I was a big fan for a long time. And then I uh, had a had a feeling to make, make some films. So I uh, went to film school. And uh, after film school, I made a TV show. I made uh, 12, uh, 18 half hour shows called alternating currents, which was exploring the soft eccentric underbelly of the Vancouver art scene. So that was quite popular and a lot of fun and a great training ground, then I made uh, promotionals and videos and uh, some educational videos, I wanted to documentaries. Uh, Made a one hour documentary in a prison about a theater company, it's called Theater Behind Bars, it's also on my website, jimmyfritz.ca and um, to one hour documentaries, all these prisoners that got together and made a uh, theater show. So we follow the process from conception to curtain over a period of about eight months it was really interesting to be in it. go to the prison, you know, on and off for eight months and, and get to know all these guys. And they got a lot out of the theater program because it gave them kind of self-confidence and self-esteem and whatnot. And they sort of found themselves through the program. And it was an autonomous program within the prison. So it funded itself. They brought in people from the outside. So that was an interesting project. And then I started writing screenplays. I wrote two feature-length screenplays and got very close to making one of them. Um, that fell apart at the end, but uh, but filmmaking is a very very expensive. It's very very time consuming. You've got to you know it takes it takes a year to finance it, a year to make it. It's just years of your life. So um, that's when I started writing because I got involved with rave culture. I just became a rave promoter, and uh, I was very impressed with that whole scene. So um, I wrote a book called Rave Culture, An Insider's Overview, and that came about because I tried to make the documentary. I put together a proposal for a documentary on Rave, and I was going to travel around the world and interview all the main players. And that got-
0: Let's take a member real fast for our sponsor. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple like pair networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of one-line businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design, and they have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you will see one free month of web hosting, See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's peer.com slash promo code QUICKSTART to get started today.
1: I got turned down by every production company in the world, and so I thought, well, I'll write the book. So I did. I wrote the Rave Culture and Insider's Overview, and um, found that very liberating because with a book you can – you can do what you want, you can do when it want, when, when you want it, you can do as much or as little as you want, you don't need anybody else's opinion or input, so um, that led me to uh, writing, so one thing kind of led to another, right?
0: Right, so you go from uh, making music to filmmaker to an author, now let me ask you this, because I always like to get an author's perspective on writing, because I actually wrote a book myself, um, so I know some ins and outs um was there ever a point when you were doing these uh books about raves that you like got a writer's block or did something stop you somewhere from uh writing at certain periods
1: no i've never had a writing block i've never um i you know i hear about it all the time but no if i've got something to say then i just you know i can say it this book took about eight months to write and uh was pretty much straight the way through you know i just started it and but it uh, was also I didn't have to make anything up because it's, uh, you know, I call it a, a psychedelic travelogue and memoir, <laughs> a geographical and psychological journey, you know, 50 year journey. So basically, I just mapped out all the events that I was going to describe. And then I edited that because there was, you know, 10 times more than I could ever put in the book. And so I just kind of hit the high points. And then I just went down the list and each 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 item on the list was a chapter. And uh yeah, no, I, I didn't, um I never had, uh, I never had writer's block.
0: Okay. Now, after you write your first book, uh, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer is your second book. Yeah. What day and what time did you decide that, hey, I need to put this book out there. I need to shed light on this so that people could understand. Because like, from like what you said, when I hear psychedelics, I already have stigmas and misconceptions already in my head. Because I'm thinking back into um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an 80s baby, so I'm thinking back to Woodstock. I'm thinking about to whatever happened at Studio 54 in the 70s, um, all that kind of stuff that led up to the early 80s. So what made you decide that it was just the right time to write this book at this moment?
1: Well, uh, because I'm going to be dead in about 10 or 15 years. so <laughs> I, thought if, I thought if I don't do it now, I won't do it. That's <laughs> a long, you know, 50 years is a nice, a nice amount of time. And uh, it was something that was in my mind, you know, for a long time to, uh, to just document, document this part of my life, because the traveling, I've done a lot of traveling in a lot of different countries, and then, and then the psychedelic overlay on top mm-hmm. of that, it just seemed like a, I just wanted to tell that story, because even people that I know today that I've known for years uh, don't know half of the stories in this book. You know, you can't just sit around narrating your own story in, in public. So it so was just it was just a chance to document that and uh, and, to you know, put it aside. So that was the, the motivation. And also because, you know, there's a lot of talk about psychedelics right now. We're on the verge of a psychotherapy, psychedelic revolution. Uh, they're being decriminalized and legalized all over the world now. And I think in 10 or 15 years time, they'll they'll be uh, available, certainly as prescription drugs, and uh, probably eventually recreationally as well. So, uh, you know, I thought that was a good time to uh, good time to do it.
0: Okay, now you lived a very, very long life. So um, living a long life, you have wisdom, experience, but could you tell us about a time of great triumph in your life? And then after that, could you tell us about a great disappointment that happened? Because like in my lifetime, I can only say that I was able to entertain. I was on TV at some point. I wrote a book. I'm doing what we call the new radio. Um, I've lived all the entertainment experience that I'll ever meet. But the one downfall that I, that I have is that I didn't take the time to go to college and learn the behind the scenes like engineering and stuff like that for uh, radio and stuff. And I wish I had. That's my biggest disappointment in life. So what about you? What's your greatest try? In your um,
1: I've had so many high points that, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of them are listed in this this new book. Um, lots of peak experiences, you know, lots of amazing places and lots of amazing people. So there's just so many, so many. And one of the one of the problems with what to put in the book was really the biggest problem was what to leave out. Because there are so many, uh, so many experiences and places and people. Uh, I was on the road for you know 20 years and and lived in a lot of different countries and so the biggest problem was what to leave out. So there's there's just so many high points and most of my life. I mean I've had a pretty much a charmed existence. I've had a lot of good luck. I've you know never never been in any desperate situations i've never had any uh, catastrophes or calamities so mostly a charmed life and i don't really regret anything i wouldn't change anything in my life looking back i don't see any any, any place where i would say no i shouldn't have done that or i regret that or that was a bad move or everything seems to uh, everything seems to have worked out you know
0: so okay. no real low
1: points either i mean no no catastrophes or disasters or, I know quite a few people that are dying right now because I'm of an age where, you know, my friends are, you know, getting sick and dropping dead. But, uh, you know, that's that's part of life, too. I mean, it's not uh, I don't think of death as a catastrophe anymore.
0: OK. And I guess when you get to a certain age or, or just in a certain realm, not age, get to a certain realm in life, get that way. Now, on this show, I pay homage to a news magazine called Twenty Twenty. In the United States, growing up, there was John Stossel, there was Diane Toyer, and then there was probably the greatest journalist, she's still alive, Barbara Walters. And I asked certain detailed questions to whoever comes on the show, just to get them to be more personable and to learn a little bit more about them. So, Jimmy, it's your turn now. You're on the hot seat. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, now here we go. Now... When we talk about psychedelic drugs and we talk about the stigmas, uh, the misconceptions, what is the worst misconception that you come upon when you're explaining this to someone that is naive to psychedelic drugs?
1: I think the biggest barrier is that people put all drugs in the same category. They think of drugs and they think of the drug addict on the street and the people overdosing on the streets and drug addicts and rehab. And that's, that's what they think about. Now, when I think about psychedelics, I think about you know, creativity and mind expansion and enhancement of life and all those things. So that's a big problem is people put all drugs into the same category and they don't realize, you know, they don't know the difference between a magic mushroom and a flap of crack. So this is a major problem, right? It's a major problem with law enforcement too. I mean, even today they don't know the difference between, uh, you know, um, consciousness-expanding drugs and mind-numbing drugs. So there's a huge difference. So we need to separate those out. That's that's probably the biggest mistake that people make is they put all drugs in the same category, and they think they're all addictive and harmful, and that's not true. Okay. The guy's name, I remember the guy's name is. His name's uh, Carl Hart. Carl Hart. Carl Hart. Uh, he's sort of on the vanguard now of, uh, of promoting, you know, responsible the, the fact that any drug can be used responsibly, and uh, you know he's a he's a he's a professor at a professor of psychology at Columbia University, and um, you know on the weekend sometimes he'll do a little bit of heroin, or if he's at a party, he'll do a line of coke, uh, you know, have a joint when he feels like it. But he does it responsibly, and he does it in a way that it fits with, hey, he has kids, he has responsibilities, he has a professional career, and it doesn't affect any of those things. In fact, he says that it enhances his performance, it enhances his, his sense of well-being, and um, I think that's, you know, I think that case needs to be made, and I make that case in my book too. And that's, so that's probably the biggest misconception, that people think that all drugs are harmful and addictive, and it's far from the truth.
0: And I I wholeheartedly agree with that, because like you said, a a drug that helps you become um, more conscious instead of a drug, a drug that mind numbs you. I can see a difference there. And inside that, I definitely, you know, my I'm very open, um, you know, to people that use drugs and, and whatever they do with their drugs. But Like you said, a certain type of level of responsibility with the drugs Uh, gives that accountability that, hey, you do have this under control. And I always had that respect for people because I'm like, hey, if you have this under control, you're, you know, it's good. It's when they slip because a mind-numbing drug, like you said, can still be in the same sense of another drug if it's used responsibly. Um, So here's my next question. When um, a person that does mind-numbing drugs comes to you and they want to reevaluate and change the way they use drugs, how do you help them?
1: Well, um I mean, that's one of the uses that uh, that, uh, they're uh, using psilocybin, they're using them as transitional drugs. They're using psychedelics as transitional drugs for opiate addicts, and, you know, uh, amphetamine addicts, and um, coke addicts. And they're using them to transition them away from those addictive drugs. So they can be used in that way, which is, you know, which is pretty interesting. There's a pilot project going on in Vancouver now where they're trying to transition addicts uh, through magic mushrooms, psilocybin. And uh, because it changes the way they think. It changes the way they think of themselves and the way they see themselves in the world. And that's, that's the problem because people are doing these harmful drugs because they have horrible lives and horrible backgrounds and trauma, psychological trauma, and they're trying to mask it. They're trying to obliterate their minds because they don't like what's going on in their mind. So they're using it as an escape from their problems, whereas psychedelics send you in the other direction. They, they, you embrace your problems or you see them in a different way. You see them with different eyes and a, and a clarity for the first time sometimes, and it can be life-changing. I've seen people turn their lives around with psychedelics. There's a lot of microdosing going on right now. A lot of people are using microdoses of acid and you know, LSD and psilocybin for uh, depression and anxiety because it just, it just brightens their day. It cheers them up. It makes them think more clearly. And um, if you do a microdose, you don't even get high. I mean, the idea is that you don't get the, the you know, you don't, you don't get, you don't hallucinate or anything. You don't get high. You don't feel any different, but it changes your brain on a, on a subtle level. It increases the, you know, neuronets and the neuropathways and uh, literally expands your consciousness physically and metaphorically.
0: Okay. And, and I thank you for that. Cause that right there, that's the gem in this episode. That right there will turn a lot of heads and it will make people a little bit more rounded in my opinion. Uh, Hopefully hopefully of the different uses and and, and how to um, approach and accept people um, on either side of the fence or who are not on the fence at all with any of this. Um, So now here goes the uh, hard question. This is the Barbara Walters question. This is the deep one. Okay, in your lifetime, You've uh, helped people along the way, and uh we never disclose any information about anybody personal to us or anything like that. But have you ever seen a time that the psychedelic use turned into a bad use for people?
1: Yeah, I mean, people can have bad trips. In fact, in um, in my new book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere, I um. I described my first, I've only ever had one bad experience on psychedelics. And I was 15 years old, and it's the first time I ever did a psychedelic. I did a huge dose of, of LSD, which was a purple, purple microdot. It's about 350, yeah. 350 micrograms. I'd never heard of LSD before. I didn't know what it did. I had no idea what I was doing. I did it with a bunch of other people who didn't know anything about it. And that's an example of, of misuse. And, I, and I, I put that in the book early on because that was to make the point that if you don't take them seriously, you can have a bad trip. And, um, but you can only have a bad trip if you do it in the wrong set and setting. And that was something that Leary, you know, Timothy Leary, exposed for, for years and years. You, know, you have to, the set is your, your frame of mind, the setting is your environment, and dosage and frequency. So if you have those things correct you never have a bad trip. If you don't, if you do too much in the wrong place, if you take a couple of hits of acid and go see a horror movie, you're likely to have a bad trip. Or if you're doing them under experimental conditions, they were doing experiments in the sixties where they tie people to the bed, they'd strap them down, give them massive doses of LSD and then stand around the bed with white coats and clipboards And these people were totally freaked out. (laughs) So So they were wigging out. Yes, that's an example of a very bad set and setting. So if you get those things wrong, you can uh, you can have a bad a bad trip and it will it'll bring up whatever's there. Also, you know, that's it's an important point that psychedelics don't put anything in your mind that isn't already there. They just amplify what's there. They're amplification amplifiers. So if you're, uh, you know, if you're troubled and depressed and anxious and paranoid and you take a big hit you know of lsd you can have a bad trip if you take a moderate dose and go for a nice pleasant walk in the woods with your friends you'll have a fantastic time so you know it's you you have to know what you're doing and it's um there's there's a lot of good information out there there's no excuse for people making these mistakes anymore but um of course people do but yeah, the, the bad experience comes from misuse um, and, uh, and misuse or abuse. If you use them responsibly and respectfully, you don't have those problems.
0: So that's what we yeah. need to
1: do. And that's what we need to be teaching young people is how to, how to use these drugs responsibly and effectively to, uh, to, you know, to enhance their lives instead of uh, you know, just gobbling everything in sight and seeing what happens.
0: And that's, I, I could agree with that. Cause like growing up in uh I'm from the state of Virginia. We got a little country area. So we had shrooms and no one told us what to do with them. they said, if you get the shrooms, you're going to get high. You're going to uh, yeah. wig out. And then, you know, we had little, uh, and, and I don't uh, shy away from this. Everybody at some point had a little acid here or there. I don't care they can sit there and lie or say what they want. And, you know, with the acid, we were, you know, the little, little drops and different things we were taught, like, you can try this, but be in a safe place. You're not gonna go just do acid, like you said, and go to a concert and wig out or nothing like that. Because, like yeah. you said, I, I, me, I play video games, so I was playing Goldeneye, and I had a bad trip off Goldeneye, and I put the Nintendo 64 down, never played it again. You know, so I wholeheartedly understand uh, what you're saying about like the setting and how things should properly be done when you're using something like that. Um, so. I want to thank you very much uh, for coming on the show and enlighten us on this. But here's my major question. This is the last part of the 2022. If there was a billboard that was in Vancouver, British Columbia, there was another billboard in Seattle, Washington, um, maybe one more in Everett, Washington, just because I like to name it Everett. Um, and, and then maybe one more in uh, Portland, Oregon. What would all these billboards say about Jimmy Fritz?
1: Uh, they'd say you should really read his new book, (laughs) Professions of an Ethical Drug Dealer.
0: (laughs) And um, one thing that I want to tell you that I really appreciate you doing, there's a part of the show we call The Shameless Plug. Yeah, I think I already did that. (laughs) Yes, yes, you were very intricate and you pulled it off. So I want to thank you very much. So Jimmy Fritz, in closing, I would like to get you to do this for the audience real fast. Please tell the audience which book they should read first, then just briefly, a quick just moment, tell them about the highlights in both books, not to give away too much.
1: All right, well, the new one is Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz. And it's a 50 year journey, psychological and geographical journey through life. Call it a psychedelic travelogue and memoir. It's um, it's intertwined. So the geographical travel is kind of intertwined with the psychedelic experiences, and it's really just to um, you know, let people know that psychedelics can be a healthy, a healthy part of a healthy life. Uh, the other one is a rave culture and insiders' overview, which is a primer for the global rave phenomenon. It's kind of a snapshot. It's a, it's a, it's fairly old right now, and some of it's out of date. But if you're interested in rave culture, it will give you the the history and the uh, history of the music, the history of the culture, the philosophy of the culture. And uh, there's a lot of stuff about MDMA in there. And so that's a useful one if you're interested in rave culture. And they can both be found on my website at jimmyfritz.ca, YouTube channel under Jimmy Fritz, J-I-M-I Fritz. And um, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of other stuff. There's a lot of films there, movies, writing, podcasts, um, and uh, it's uh, it's a really a center for all your entertainment needs.
0: <laughs> now, what I do on this show is I like to give everybody a quick testament of who they are and who, uh, per- presuming you to be. So, let me tell you a quick, Jimmy Fritz. There's one thing that's remarkable about you. It's this word we use, fortitude not a lot of people have fortitude a lot of people have this this strong will to be brave but you got fortitude here you're pushing um the envelope here to be able to talk about the topic you're talking about and to not be uh unabashed or anything like that for the simple fact like you've been through it you tripped one time uh and to do that for 50 years and to be on both sides of not drug dealing but both sides of seeing both things of the smart drugs and the dumb drugs. Uh, I commend you for that. It takes a lot to get out here and to express openly um, in a nice fashion about drug use. Because the first thing that's slapped in the world is a negative commentation on anyone that uses a drug, from the person that does psychedelics, to the person that does weed, to the person that uses fentanyl, to the person that uses other type of opiates. Um, and you are being very conscious and speaking to and allowing these people to understand that there is a responsible way you can do this with any drug to a degree, not every drug, but we'll say any drug, just for argument's sake. Um, and that's exceptional. Not, there's nobody else in the world that's doing that right now, because everyone has a stance either you do drugs then all drugs are fine, or no, drugs are bad, stay away from drugs. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being that person that's not in the middle, that person that's not uh, trying to crusade in a sense that doesn't make sense. Your crusade makes sense. Right, Use drugs responsibly. <laughs> Use drugs responsibly, and you won't have any issues. Um, and the point of taking se- psychedelic drugs and explaining that not all psychedelic drugs fit into the, the, the uh, presence of amphetamines or any of the opiates and stuff like that. Those are totally different drugs from what you are trying to explain uh, to people and the thought of what makes your conscience go forward and what makes your conscience go backwards. That right there was the gem in this episode, because like you said, um, knowing these two two entities makes it a whole lot easier and an a easier way to explain things to the audience and to people when you're expressing all your views. So Jimmy Fritz, I would like to tell you, thank you. All right, for well, thank your you. service, thank you. All right, And, um, this has been a great episode here, West Virginia and Commonplace, and we're signing off. Okay. Bye-bye from Vancouver. All the best. Peace.